So have you ever had heartburn? I, I mean, I, I had a pretty bad round last night that's kind of spilled over today, so I'm, I'm there, you know. I, I didn't realize that when I was putting this together, but yeah, heartburn, it's, it's a real thing. Husband anteater and a wife anteater in a cartoon were asleep, and the husband suddenly sits up and says, oh man, I have the worst heartburn from eating all those fire ants for supper. His wife turns and says, you need an ant acid. <laughs> I got no shame. Man, I, I, I bring those all the time. For those of us who have suffered occasionally from heartburn, or if you're uh, having issues that are chronic with heartburn, we, we know it's really not a laughing matter. In fact, Sometimes heartburn can give us symptoms like you're, like you're having a heart attack. It's, it's miserable. It's terrible. But the interesting thing is, is that strategically and physiologically, your heart has nothing to do with heartburn. WebMD describes it this way. Heartburn is an irritation of the esophagus, the tube that connects your throat and stomach. It's caused by stomach acid. And this leads to a burning discomfort in your upper belly or breastbone. Heartburn uh, is, is a miserable feeling. But there is possibly nothing worse in the life of a church than when a church has heartburn. Nothing worse than when a church has heartburn because what happens is that means that there's an irritation between two or more believers inside of the church, and, and that irritation is caused most often by the acid of sin. And, and it creates a, a burning discomfort within the church, among the people of the church, and then sadly sometimes that burning discomfort moves outside of the church into the community. You leave a church business meeting, you go home, and you you call or text your brother or your sister or your second cousin out at Lizard Lick Baptist Church and you just, oh man, I can't believe what happened tonight. Or you go down to Rush's and you, you get a booth and I mean, you talk very loudly about what you didn't like that was in that meeting. So loud that everybody in the restaurant can hear you, including the guy in the back making banana splits. Everybody knows what you didn't like about what happened. There's almost nothing worse in the life of the church than a church that has heartburn. Now, by God's grace, unless you're texting or calling or sitting in the booth blowing people's ears up with something I don't know about, our church, by my distinction, does not have heartburn. That's a good thing. So it's, it's really good to be able to preach this sermon today because we're not in the middle of heartburn. It makes a lot of freedom for God's Word. As Doris Akers wrote more than 50 years ago in a praise song, there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. And, and there is. There's a, there's a good spirit at Holland Avenue. Um, the church is, is growing spiritually. The church is growing numerically. God's blessing us financially through your giving. We, we look at, at everything that's happening in the life of the church. The gospel's being preached. Believers are helping other believers in the church. Believers are helping non-believers outside of the church. It's, it's good times. Good times. Now, will it always be that way? Sadly, 
No. It won't, won't always be perfect. It won't always be fantastic. It won't always perfectly be good times. Why? Charles Spurgeon said this, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it means simply this, that I'm a sinner and you are a sinner. And, and if we are left to ourselves, we will gravitate toward being selfish and petty and we'll complain and we'll criticize and we'll pout and we'll fight. See, we're, we're drawn toward those things, and, and we'll do all, things, all those things in an effort to try to, to get things the way we want them to be. Here's the thing, though. We're not left to ourselves, are we? We're really not. Tim Challies writes, Satan hates God, and therefore he hates God's people, the church. His great plan for the church is to cause Christians, true believers, who ought to be together in the gospel, to find ways of disagreeing among themselves, to divide them, to be bitter and jealous, and ultimately to bite and devour one another, as Paul writes to the Galatians. Well, that may be our enemy's great plan for the church, but, but God has a different great plan for the church. He has a, a great plan for this church, and he has a great plan for other churches, and he has a great plan for this community, and he has a great plan for the world. God has a great plan in and through this church for your marriage, for your parents, for your kids, for your whole family, for your friends, for lost people. And God's great plan involves one simple task for me and you. One simple task that, that all of us can do. And what is that simple task? Well, you need to move. <laughs> Actually, we all need to move. And how do we need to move? Well, we need to move together. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's see if we can find out. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good. And how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's possible this psalm is written after about eight years of serious division among the people of God. They were divided politically. They were divided spiritually. But all of that is over. Now this new exciting season is coming where David is going to be the king over all of the tribes of Israel. Bruce Catton retold the story about how in 1913 the government sponsored uh, a, a day that commemorated the Battle of Gettysburg. And they invited soldiers from the north and the south to, to come, those who had fought in the battle. They invited them to come and, and be a part of that day. Most of them were in their 70s, maybe even older, but they participated in some kind of reenactment that day of the battle. Philip Myers was a college student working for a journalist. He was there that day, and, and he described what happened at the end of the battle reenactment. This is what he said. It was then that the Yankees, unable to restrain themselves longer, burst from behind the stone wall and flung themselves upon their former enemies. The emotion of the moment was so contagious that there was scarcely a dry eye in the huge throng. Now they fell upon each other, not in mortal combat, but reunited in brotherly love and affection. 
This is just a, a song for Sunday morning that's being written by the psalmist here. This, this is a, a picture of hurt and pain and war and division, and it is over, and it has been replaced with brotherly love and affection. So the notion that, that this is good and pleasant, the, the notion that this now was a moment where the people could dwell together in unity. This, this was a gigantic thing. See, the psalmist is looking and he's saying, man, this, this is good. Dwelling together in unity, this is good. This is pleasant. This, this is super fabulous. I, I like this. It's been said that everything that's good is not always pleasant, and everything that is pleasant is not always good. It might be pleasant to eat a, a plate of, of fresh cooked bacon. I mean, that, that, that might be pleasant. Probably isn't good for your body, though. You know, just generally speaking, pro- probably not good. And then on the flip side, we have, we have multiple people in our church right now um, engaged in chemotherapy. And they would not tell us as their testimony that it was or, or will be a pleasant experience, but we are deeply praying that it would be good, that it would be good, that God's mercy would come through that medicine. Everything that's good is not always pleasant. Everything that's pleasant is not always good, except unity in the church. It's so interesting. David says, yeah, you know what? It's good and pleasant when the church is dwelling and living in unity. That's, that's good. That's good. A few hours before he was arrested, Jesus was praying for his closest friends, praying for his disciples. And this is what he prayed for them. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. In just a few hours, all of these guys that he's praying for, they're going to run away from him as if they don't even know him. And yet here Jesus is boldly out loud in front of them, praying for them and praying for their future. See, they were going to run, but eventually they were going to stop running. They were no longer going to abandon Jesus. They were going to abandon their lives for Jesus. Jesus knew that. Jesus chose them. Jesus died on the cross to empower them. Jesus wasn't hoping that they were going to step up. He knew they were going to step up. Why? Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To be a Christian means that Christ is working in you, that the, the power of the cross is working in you. 
that the attitude and the demeanor and the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ is, is actually inside of your heart. Jesus has made your heart his home. Your strength is not good enough. In case you didn't learn that this week, you might this week, but your strength, my strength, it's not good enough. But the strength of Jesus is perfect. And that's why we surrender. That's why we use that word, surrender. That's why we submit to Jesus so that we do nothing to hinder or distract the power of Jesus working in and through our lives. Jesus was going to accomplish a lot through the lives of his disciples. You say, like what? Like you're here. Like this church exists. Like a lot of us have been saved. That's what Jesus accomplished through those disciples. Because they did not stay at First Baptist Church, Jerusalem. They didn't enjoy each other and hang out and dwell in unity together and never communicate the gospel. They abandoned their lives to Jesus and the gospel got out and the gospel came all the way to South Carolina. Jesus works in and through us, but notice as Jesus was praying, he wasn't just praying for his disciples. Who else was he praying for? He's praying for me and he's praying for you. Jesus, just hours before he died on the cross, he was actually praying for you. Because he was praying for everybody who was going to believe. He was praying for everybody that was going to hear the gospel. He was praying for everybody that was going to believe the gospel. Jesus was praying for you before you were born. That the gospel might grab your soul. That the gospel might capture your heart. Listen again to how he prayed that they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays that that believers would be one. He prays that, that they would have a good and pleasant life together just in the same way the psalmist says it, that we would dwell together in unity. So what does it mean to have unity? And maybe more specifically, what does it mean to have unity in the church? Well, let's first talk about what it it doesn't mean, okay? Jesus is not praying when he prays for unity for uniformity, right? He's not praying that we all wear the same uniforms. He's not, not praying that we all have the same color and the same style and the same logo. The disciples were very different men. I mean, very different, you know? Tax collector, fisherman, you know? They don't normally hang out together, probably. And guess what? You're different. And I'm different. How you do things at your house is probably different than how I do things at my house. We are all different. And we handle things different. When Jesus is praying for unity, he's not praying that all of these different people would do everything exactly the same. He's not praying that we would have the same style or the same personality or the same appearance or the same organizational approach to everything that we do in life. He's not praying that for the church either. He's also not praying for unanimous agreement. Jesus is, is not praying that everybody would have the same opinion about everything all the time. 
That's not what he's praying for. Some people, when they think of unity, they think, well, that's just when everybody finally gets around to agreeing with me. (laughs) Sometimes that's our definition of unity. Augustine said this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Some things are essential and some things are not essential. But what is essential in the life of the church is charity and love and kindness and mercy. What is essential is that we would be slow and work against complaining and criticizing and pouting and fighting unnecessarily. Those things are essential to the life of the church. And why? Because they're really essential to the life of a Christian. Jesus is not praying for uniformity. He's not praying for unanimous agreement. What's he praying for? Well, he's praying that they would be one. He's he's praying that they would be one. And and the psalmist, he's, he's singing this song that there would be a church that would love the good and pleasant joy of dwelling together in unity. The opposite is also true though, right? There's nothing more miserable and stressful and awkward and uncomfortable than when a church is, is not dwelling together in unity. Jesus, he, he wanted his followers to be one. He, he wanted them to have the, the same mind. He's not praying they would have uniformity. He's not praying they would have unanimous agreement on everything. He's praying for unity. And what does unity do and how does unity happen? Well, don't miss this very simple point. Unity happens through identity. Unity happens through identity. Jesus wanted their primary identity to be in him. He wanted them to know that that following after him, being devoted to him, that was their primary identity. You know why many Christians and and many churches struggle in being an effective witness for Jesus just in in how they live and how they speak and how they act? One of the reasons they struggle in that is because their identity is not in Christ. Far too many churches are making their identity that they're traditional, are making their identity that they're contemporary, or making their identity that they wear suits, or making their identity that they wear skinny jeans, or making their identity that they sing hymns, or making their identity that they sing praise songs. You know, personal preferences and church preferences, those are fine, but they're not primary. They are not primary. Jesus is primary. Identity in Christ is primary. It's first and it's most. Every church doesn't have to look the same and sound the same and dress the same. They just don't. But a true church of Jesus Christ, they must be the same in saying, my identity, our identity is in Jesus Christ first and most. One pastor put it this way, unity is the byproduct of people who are following Jesus. That's kind of simple, right? Unity is the byproduct of people that are are following Jesus. If there's no unity, then then we're off in our following of Jesus. So so how do you know? I mean, how do you know if you have unity with another person? Or how do you know if you have unity in the church? Or or what do you do when it feels like maybe the unity is is not working? I'm I'm an oversimplified guy. I don't don't think really smart thoughts. I keep things really simple. So, So here's just three questions you could ask. 
Are you striving to have your identity in Christ? Are you striving to have your identity in Christ? Are you working to see that other people find Jesus? Are you working to see that other people find Jesus? And third, do you love the Bible? <laughs> they're simple, I know. But, but they're a, a pretty good start because they draw you to the gospel. And, and maybe a, a parallel to that is try to prayerfully consider whether the other person that you might have a disagreement with is doing these as well. You know? And if they're not striving to have their identity in Christ, if they're not working to see that other people find Jesus, if they don't really love the Bible, even though they may say they do, then you know what you need to do? You just need to pray for them. You know? Don't yell those three questions at them. Oh, you don't have identity in Jesus and you don't love the Bible, so I'm right. Yeah, don't do that. One, just because that voice is annoying. Don't ever do what I just did. But, but those are simple questions that move us toward the gospel. They move our, our minds toward Jesus, and the gospel is primary. German philosopher Heinrich Heine said this, you show me your redeemed lives, and I'll be inclined to believe in your redeemer. See, we, we need to be following after our redeemer, and when we do, when we're following after Jesus, what's supposed to come out will come out perfectly? No. But, but generally speaking, people will know they're seeing us follow Jesus. We're to have unity in Christ. We're to have unity in his gospel. And what does that unity look like? Listen to what Jesus prays next for his friend. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Jesus wanted his disciples. Jesus wants me. Jesus wants you. He wants us to be like him. So what's Jesus like? Well, just if we look at the whole of Jesus' life, we see that he is humble that he is serving, that he is willing to suffer, and he is willing to sacrifice. So that's it. That, that's, that's what the call in our life is. Jesus is praying that we would be humble, serving, sacrificial, and that we'd be willing to suffer in our service for others. The unity of the church should look like that. It shouldn't be arrogant. It shouldn't be territorial. It should be humble. It should be serving. That's what we should see in the life of the church. Some people come to church with an attitude that says, you know what, I just like to argue with people. I love a good debate. I love taking my Bible and thumping people on the head. I'm just all about it. That's really not pursuing unity in Christ. Other people will say, you know what, I think it's good for people to get saved. I do. I, I think people need to find salvation. And I think it's good for them to meet Jesus. But really, I'm kind of looking for a church that will just meet my needs. That's not pursuing unity in Christ. Other people say, well, you know what? I, I, just, I got my own way of doing things. It's always worked in my business. It's always worked in my house. So I'm just going to wait for the church to catch up with my ways of doing things. Then everything will be fine. That's not pursuing unity in Christ. Jesus doesn't pray that we would be in us. Jesus prays. That his attitude, his demeanor, his love, his service, his humility, that those things would drive us, that those things would become our passion. He prays that he and his attitude would be in us. Unity is defined by identity. 
and our identity has to be in Christ if there is going to be unity. Max Licato shares an interesting tale about what it means to be missing your identity in Christ. I don't think I've ever shared this with you before, but if I have, sorry, it's, it's good, so we'll hear it again. He writes, some time ago, I came upon a fellow on a trip carrying a Bible. Are you a believer? I asked him. Yes, he said excitedly. I've learned you can't be too careful. Virgin birth, I asked. I accept it. Deity of Jesus, no doubt. Death of Christ on the cross, he died for all people. Could it be that I was face to face with a Christian? Perhaps. Nonetheless, I continued my checklist. Status of man, sinner in need of grace. Definition of grace, God doing for man what man can't do. Return of Christ, imminent. Bible, inspired. The church, the body of Christ. I started getting excited. Conservative or liberal? Conservative. Ah, oh, now, now he was getting interested too. My heart began to beat faster. Heritage, Southern Congregationalist, Holy Son of God, Dispensationalist, Triune Convention. <gasps> that was mine. Branch, premillennial, post-trib, non-charismatic, King James, one cup communion. My eyes misted. I had only one other question. Is your pulpit wooden or fiberglass? Fiberglass, he responded. I withdrew my hand, stiffened my neck, and shouted, heretic, and walked away. It sounds silly, but can I just tell you, I've heard stories just like that this week in Casey and West Columbia about churches and Christians. It's not just some story from a pastor in Texas. It's happening right here. I'm going to read slowly through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me back up a second and just again say this. It's not happening here. It's not happening in Holland Avenue. And so you need to know I will fight you if you try. <laughs> if your goal is not Jesus with grace and mercy and love and usually trying to smile at you, I'll fight you. <laughs> because our purpose, our identity is Jesus, period. It must be. We've been saved for it to be. Pardon has been multiplied to us. Why would we desire to have any other identity? And so two things. One, oh, let's be so thankful for how good God is being to our church because, again, we're, we're all sinful and, and those moments and those times will come. But we're going we're gonna to press through because we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. And then let me just really encourage you. No, I'm not going to encourage you. We're going to stop right now, and we're just going to pray. I just want you to pray with me. Father, we, we stop now in the middle of our time together to pray for the other churches in our community. We, we are just one church in this area. And there are some churches this morning that are meeting in wonderful buildings and are not really worshiping Jesus Christ. 
we pray, would you capture their hearts all over again? Would you help them to see how beautiful Jesus is? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you help us to be careful about repeating the gossip from those churches? And that we would be broken and we would hurt. It would give us pain that there are a group of people that claim the name of Jesus and they can't seem to find Jesus right now. And would you cause us to pray for them, to to encourage them, to cheer them on, to go interrupt their sin in the booth at the restaurant and bring the gospel into the conversation. God, help us to be Christians like that, that we cheer and we challenge in the great and beautiful name of Jesus. Would you be merciful to those churches that are struggling? Would you be merciful to the churches that are not? And would you be merciful to us that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Listen to 1 Thessalonians, starting with verse 12, chapter 5. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Verse 13. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And it says this, live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. (laughs) Be great if you left that out, right? Verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And and then he, he says this, this is some great stuff. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. When you find yourself unhappy with something in in your local church, because I don't know, some of you may be visiting, you may not be here at our church. If If you find yourself unhappy with something in your local church, and guess what? You will find yourself unhappy with something in your local church. All of us will have moments where we are unhappy with something in the church. When you find yourself in that moment, every single one of us, we, we can do exactly what we've been saying the last few weeks. In that moment, we can move. We, we can move and we can do everything we can to not be quick to complain, criticize, pout, or fight. We, we, can, be, we can be quick not to do those things. Rather, we need to pray. We need to think. We need to marinate on God's word. And then we need to see how God would have us respond. Because God's going to lead you to respond in one of two ways. Broad categories. One of two ways. He's going to lead you to do something or he's going to lead you to do nothing. Do do nothing can be a little harder. (laughs) It means don't complain. Don't criticize. Don't pout. Don't fight. Sometimes God's going to call us to do nothing, and sometimes he's going to call us to do something. And when he calls us to do something, he's going to call us to do it in a different way. But we need to be ready to to do whatever he leads us to do. And at no time will God ever lead you to quench the Spirit. 
It's not going to lead you to quench the Spirit. We, we need to do everything we can not to quench the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, quenching the Spirit is, is a whole other sermon, or another 74 sermons. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of pull just, just one thought, okay, just to kind of help us through this. Listen to Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All right, how, do, how do we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Okay, so we don't do those things. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. We don't do those things. So what do we do? Verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's, that's what we move toward. We move toward being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. John Piper says this about quenching the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit means resisting the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the gracious behaviors that come from the Spirit to be kind and gracious to other people. In other words, live out the fruit of the Spirit. How do we not quench the Spirit? Live out the fruit. That's how you die. If you want to not quench the Spirit, then then live out the fruit. Live out the, the fruit of your identity in Christ. And why should we live out the fruit of our identity in Christ? I, just, I want you to see it again. I'm going to go back on the slide. You should live out the fruit of your identity in Christ because God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. If if you're a Christian, just sit in that for a second. God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. In this room on Monday... We had a a beautiful funeral service for Betty Wise. And one of the things her sister said to her was that when they got off the phone every day, they would say, okay, I'll see you later. I'll see you later too. Well, actually, she said, I'll see you later, Frank. I'll see you later, Betty Boo. And Frances said a few weeks ago, Betty quit saying that. And she said, or I'll see you there. Do you know how much confidence it takes in Jesus Christ to say, I'll I'll see you there because there I will live in the reality that God has forgiven my sins in Christ Jesus. And friend, if God has forgiven your sins in Christ Jesus, we have a long way ahead of fuel and gas and energy to dwell in unity. We have to fight hard to not dwell in unity because of how much grace we have in Jesus Christ. Part of being there is that when we're here, we understand that we have been forgiven in Jesus. That's why you live out your fruit. You don't live out your fruit because I told you to. I'm some punk from North Augusta. Don't listen to me. You know? Now you live out your fruit because you've been forgiven in Christ Jesus. That's why we live out our fruit. 
How do we not quench the spirit? Be kind, be tenderhearted, forgive. How can we dwell together in unity? It's unbelievable math. Be kind, be tenderhearted, forgive. That's, that's how we do it. And, and why does this matter? Remember a few moments ago, I said that, that God has a great plan for the church and that great plan for the church actually has a huge impact in your own life. See, the reason we have to live out our fruit is, is because the, this is super simple and super powerful. Because when it comes to your church, whether that's here or whether you have another church somewhere, when it comes to your church, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your relationship between husband and wife, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your fellow church member, your relationship with people at school or relationship with people at work or relationship with complete strangers you meet, living out your fruit is one of the most amazing medicines for heartburn. See, living out your fruit is how God has chosen through Jesus Christ to deal with spiritual heartburn. That's why it matters. We are here to help, to even by God's grace bring some healing, and most of all to bring some hope. So, I will say to you as your pastor, as your fellow church member, as your friend, as the punk from North Augusta, I will say to you, how good, how wonderful, how fantastic, how beautiful, how satisfying, how joy-fulfilling, how happy, how blessed, how fortunate will we be if we will dwell together in unity.